Welcome to the Badlands. That overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast, a series which aims to expose and examine the underlying ideas that shape our political landscape. I'm Toby Napolitano. And I'm Michael Hughes. We want to start the series off by focusing on the ideological battle that is currently taking place in the Democratic Party between so-called progressives and so-called moderate or centrist Democrats. But here's the thing. We're not journalists. We're philosophers. So we're not going to try to simply report on what the latest disputes are in the Democratic Party. We want to know why there's a dispute. What are the underlying philosophical differences between progressives and Democrats that are fueling the battle? For example, we know that progressives are very much against money in politics. Democrats, less so. Progressives favor government-run health insurance. Democrats, again, less so. Well, why is that? Are there coherent ideologies that unify progressive thought and more centrist thought? And how do they differ? Those are the kinds of questions we're interested in. Okay, so one of our aims here is just to clarify progressivism and its relation to other political ideologies. You know, just what the hell do we mean when we say that someone's a progressive or someone's a moderate? But the other, more general aim is to actually examine the deep political values that form those ideologies. I mean, I, I don't want to sound too grandiose here, but that kind of examination seems really freaking important for the success of a democracy. Healthy democracy requires that we actually have a legitimate contest of ideas. Think of it this way. If our political system doesn't have a range of political ideas on offer, then we don't, in any real sense, have a choice in political matters, and so have no influence on political outcomes. Those political outcomes, of course, have serious consequences in our lives. And furthermore, having choices doesn't mean much if we don't know what they are. So we had better damn well figure out just what those choices are. That's what this podcast is about. So let's get back to the fight in the Democratic Party. Look, the struggle between progressives and the more moderate forces in the Democratic Party are not new. Ralph Nader's 2000 presidential campaign is still a major sore spot for Democratic Party loyalists. But it was also remarkably prescient of critiques to come. He ripped the party for caving to corporate influence, insisted that democracy could only flourish if there were substantial campaign finance reforms, and if you look at the details of his platform, it anticipated most of the ideas that were popularized by Bernie's campaign. In many ways, Nader's campaign provided the blueprint for challenges from the left that were advanced by progressives like Dennis Kucinich, Elizabeth Warren, and later Bernie Sanders. Now, these skirmishes have tended to be pretty one-sided. Progressives raise some annoying criticism of the Democratic Party, which ends up resonating with a good number of people, but the issue is soon forgotten and we move on with politics as usual. That's partly what made Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016 so damn engaging. It was the first time in recent memory that the Democratic Party could have veered off the course it had been on since the beginning of Bill Clinton's presidency. And that is probably why this seemed like one of the most hotly contested primaries in a very long time. The philosophical stakes were higher than the personal stakes. Of course, Clinton went on to win the nomination, but the same struggle manifested again, a bit less publicly, during the DNC chair election, in which the frontrunners were the progressive Keith Ellison and the more centrist Tom Perez. Perez went on to win, but the bitterness between progressives and the rest of the Democratic Party remains. Yeah, it seems like everyone on the left thinks that the Democratic Party is a hot mess right now, and that we need to, you know, heal the wounds caused by the 2016 election and 
come together as Democrats. Good luck. But, okay, here's what's really strange about this feud. We've described it as a kind of war of ideas that's going on. But at times, only one side recognizes that there's any real conflict here. Progressives, who have been very vocal in their criticisms of much of the Democratic Party, clearly see a difference. But the rest of the Democrats don't always seem to recognize a real conflict. Right. Think back to the 2016 primaries. Hillary Clinton won the nomination, and Sanders supporters were, as Sarah Silverman put it, To the Bernie or bust people, you're being ridiculous. By not supporting Clinton. The thought there was that, really, there's not much difference between Clinton and Sanders, and so there's no good reason for Sanders supporters not to support Clinton. Hillary Clinton herself has made similar claims in a recent book, What Happened? She says, for instance, and I'm quoting here, Because we agreed on so much, Bernie couldn't make an argument against me in this area on policy, so he had to resort to innuendo and impugning my character, end quote. Now, she's talking about money and politics here, but a lot of Democrats accept the more general claim that there just wasn't much disagreement between Sanders and Clinton on policy, full stop. Right. And what's really weird about this is that the very same moderate Democrats who argue that there is no real difference between progressives and other Democrats often criticize progressives for being too radical or too naive. For instance, Hillary Clinton, in that very same book, accused Sanders of offering ponies to Americans. In other words, making outlandish legislative promises that he couldn't possibly keep. These can't both be right. Either progressives and moderate Democrats are basically the same, or progressives have different goals and proposals. So which one is it? Is the current ideological battle just some empty turf war, or are there real philosophical differences between the two groups? Well, obviously we think the differences are real, and they run deep. They involve fundamental assumptions about the purposes and requirements of participatory democracy, and what constitutes civic equality. They concern economic policy, and even our basic economic vision, what we think a good economy should achieve. There are also crucial differences in how the two groups relate to identity politics, and how economic issues relate to identity-based issues. And there are differences in how each group conceives of the role of the United States and the U.S. military in the rest of the world. In short, in most of the key areas of political debate, we see deep divides. In this episode, though, we're going to talk about money and politics. There is a reason why these people are putting huge amounts of money into our political system. And in my view, it is undermining American democracy and it is allowing Congress to represent wealthy campaign contributors and not the working families of this country. That, anyways, is the basic concern. That money in politics undermines our democracy because our government ends up representing the interests of those who provide big contributions to political campaigns or parties, and it mostly ignores everyone else. In short, those of us who do not have lots of money to spend on politics simply do not have the same ability to influence political outcomes. And this puts it mildly. We have way less influence over political outcomes. Right. There's that famous Princeton study conducted in 2014 that actually concluded, essentially, that the U.S. is an oligarchy, not a democracy. They write, Multivariate analysis indicates that economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy, while average citizens and mass-based interest groups have little or no independent influence. Little or no independent influence. So I think it would probably be helpful to explain the main statistical argument of that paper because it puts in such stark terms just how undemocratic our political institutions are. The basic question they ask is, 
What happens when you hold fixed the preferences of affluent Americans and special interest groups towards some proposed policy change, and then look at the statistical probability of that policy change being adopted when there is a large majority of average citizens in favor of that policy versus when there is only a tiny minority in favor of that policy? Their statistical analysis suggests that the probability of its adoption is virtually unchanged. In other words, the preferences of average Americans have no meaningful impact on the likelihood that a policy change will be adopted. Right, and on the flip side, if we hold fixed the preferences of average Americans, and then consider whether the probability of adoption varies with the preferences of the affluent and or special interest groups, they find a substantial impact on the probability that the policy will or won't be adopted. For instance, when affluent Americans are mostly opposed to some policy change, its chances of being adopted decrease by about 50%. Similarly, when the affluent are mostly for a policy change, its chances increase by about 50%. And they reach similar conclusions about special interest groups. The probabilities go up or down about 50% in the expected directions. Okay, so the upshot here then is that when your family member insists over Thanksgiving dinner that America is an oligarchy controlled by the wealthy, interest groups, and corporations, they're not necessarily speaking hyperbolically. Even if that family member is otherwise crazy, careful statistical analysis backs them up on that particular claim. Apologies in advance, but I'm going to go on a bit of a diatribe here. Because I think that last observation brings up something really important. The claim that American democracy is ruled by our economic elites in some ways rings of conspiracy. And there is an instinct to dismiss such claims as conspiratorial especially by people who have strong patriotic beliefs. For instance, the belief that America is a model for how the democracies of the world ought to function. Such patriotic beliefs cannot easily be reconciled with the evidence showing that America fits the definition of an oligarchy to a T. And when faced with this contradiction, I think a lot of folks reason according to a familiar pattern. They take note of the conspiratorial nature of the claim, in the pure sense that it might involve people plotting to screw over some group of people, and then infer that the claim in question must not be true. What makes this form of reasoning especially frustrating is that the very folks who dismiss out of hand the available empirical evidence insist that they're the ones being rational, because they're anti-conspiratorial in their thinking. Of course, in reality, they're just being flat-out anti-intellectual. Right, so it isn't a conspiracy, but rather a well-supported scientific hypothesis, or at least one that cannot simply be rejected out of hand. Okay, so there are really concerning effects of money in politics on our democracy, but that's not the only issue. It's not as though the interests of the extremely wealthy line up nicely with the interests of the rest of us. Indeed, often the interests of the wealthy go against the interests of the non-wealthy majority. The list of examples is far too long here to go through, but think tax reform, unions, welfare programs, consumer protections, and on and on. These are two huge concerns about money in politics. First, it undermines democracy, and second, it tends to lead to outcomes that are harmful for the majority of people. But how does this issue fit into the dispute between progressives and Democrats? Well, one of the main criticisms progressives make of the Democratic Party is that Democrats take money from big business, Wall Street, Big Pharma, and so on, and that they are beholden to those big business interests. Democrats have kind of a complicated position on this issue. On the one hand, the Democratic Party's line on the matter seems to be that money in politics is bad, 
and that the system needs to be changed. On the other hand, they continue to take big donations, and in general, the issue is not a central part of their platform. How can they agree with progressives that big money in politics is generally a problem, but disagree with progressives about whether it is bad that they, the Democrats, take big donations? It might be tempting to think that Democrats are just being hypocritical here, but it's actually more complicated than that. When a progressive accuses a Democrat of accepting big donations, the Democrat usually responds in one of two ways. First, they will say that there's no good evidence that receiving big donations has corrupted them in any way. Here, for example, is a clip of Hillary Clinton responding to this kind of accusation from Bernie Sanders during the 2016 primaries. There is this attack that he is putting forth, which really comes down to, you know, anybody who ever took donations or speaking fees from any interest group uh, has to be bought. And I just absolutely reject that, Senator. And here's a clip from Michael Blake, the current vice chair of the DNC, in an interview with Nomi Konst during his campaign. I think we have to take a step back, first of all. You know, if, if the question is, if you believe money automatically corrupts someone, because I think that's the core, deeper issue that's there, uh, which I'm not convinced of that, you know, just because of the dollars that comes in that automatically corrupts someone. Absolutely not. The other way Democrats respond to the accusation is to say that taking big donations simply is necessary if they're going to win any elections against Republicans, who, we all agree, are much worse than Democrats generally. Here's a clip of Barney Frank putting this point nicely in an interview with Jordan Sheridan. No, I get big donations from banks. I don't believe that people on the left should engage in unilateral disarmament. Is it really your goal to have us all lose? Do, do, you, do you think it would really be better for liberals, regulators, if all the money from the banks went to Republicans as opposed to just 80%? So the first way of responding says that generally, big money in politics is a bad thing. But I am an exception to the rule because I have not been corrupted by big donations. The second way says that big money in politics is generally a bad thing, but... I'm going to need to take those donations if we want to avoid disaster. Or, you know, if you want campaign finance laws to change. Because we sure as hell know that Republicans won't change them. We'll address both of these responses in more detail in the next episode. But before we do, we need to point out what is arguably the most important point thus far. These responses, even if they are correct, completely misunderstand why big money in politics is a problem. The response from Democrats seems to assume that the real problem with money in politics is that it corrupts politicians. We think this is, in fact, a problem. But what we want to argue is that big money undermines our democracy, even if no politician is ever corrupted by these donations. The problem is about structure, not individual politicians. You know how everyone says that the mainstream media is biased? Well, the journalists at mainstream media outlets tend to be perplexed by this. They will point out that, after all, their bosses never tell them what they can or can't write. So, how could they be biased? Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman have given what is now a pretty well-known explanation for this phenomenon. What they say is that the bias of mainstream news outlets doesn't require that there be any bosses censoring their writers, because structural facts about the news outlets ensure that your journalists will have, for example, pro-business, pro-political establishment views. How does this work? Well... First, consider who owns mainstream media outlets. It's a handful of massive corporations. Why does that matter? Because these are giant businesses, and so they will tend to do what giant businesses do, promote their financial interests. So when it comes time to hire or promote people in the news outlets, who gets left out? Well, 
it would make sense for them to promote and hire people who generally have pro-business, pro-status quo outlooks. After all, the status quo is working out pretty damn well for those businesses. Those whose views are a bit too far from that message don't make it in the media organization. They rock the boat too much, and the media outlets can't have this. If you need examples of this happening, check out the stories of Cenk Uger, the founder of the Young Turks, who used to work at MSNBC, or Chris Hedges in the New York Times. Take the case of Hedges. He was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times for 15 years, covering stories in the Middle East, and did quite well. But when he began to speak out against the Iraq War in 2003, there was backlash from the New York Times, and Hedges ended up leaving. Interestingly, what the New York Times said was that they thought his remarks would undermine the paper's claims to impartiality. In other words, moral criticism of American foreign affairs is outside the scope of what the newspaper sees as an acceptable range of opinions for the paper. Or consider Noam Chomsky, who provides another kind of example of this phenomenon. While he's never been looking for a job in journalism, as far as anyone knows, he's easily one of the most important intellectual figures in America today. And yet, ever since he criticized the Vietnam War as being immoral and illegal, he's basically been blackballed from being invited on mainstream media outlets. The basic idea, then, is not that there is a top-down requirement forcing any journalist or writer to write a report on certain things, though this sometimes happens, but rather that the journalists and writers who are employed at these institutions are selected in part because of their own ideological leanings. And to be clear, we're not blaming journalists for being biased. Everyone has a worldview, and with that worldview will come certain biases. What's striking about news outlets is that the range of worldviews they offer is so narrow, and so their entire organizations end up having very particular biases, whether you're Fox News or CNN. So how does this kind of structural explanation work in the political case? Well, the idea is just that even if big donations don't corrupt any individuals or change any politician's mind on some issue, they hold their office because they are, in effect, selected for the particular political views that they have, more specifically, pro-business, pro-status quo positions. Now, of course, politicians are not literally selected by various corporations. People still have to vote. Nevertheless, there's a very strong correlation between campaign spending and campaign success. Statistical analyses show that the more you outspend your opponent, the more you're likely to win by, and vice versa. There are exceptions to the rule, of course. Most notably, Trump's win over Clinton in 2016. But the correlation shouldn't be surprising. A successful campaign will very often require staff that will make calls, go door-to-door, organize events, etc. And, of course, it will require being able to advertise yourself to voters so that they even know who you are. In general, then... You need lots of money to have a chance to win in an election. Now, the question is, why is this a threat to democracy? Why does it lead to systematic underrepresentation of the views of the non-wealthy? After all, you might think, the reason why some candidates raise more money than others just has to do with the fact that they are more popular. More people support them, so more people are able to contribute to their campaign. Which one is it? Is it that popular candidates have lots of money because they're popular, or is it that candidates become popular because they have lots of money? It's clearly a bit of both. But if it's both, then that means that those who have money have a serious leg up on their opponents. And crucially, what this means is that worldviews and policies that appeal to the wealthy will tend to have an advantage, and that advantage is baked right into our political structure. Let me try to illustrate this with a simple thought experiment. Think about the mechanics of running for a local office for a second. Suppose there are two candidates running for mayor in some town. As in most cases in these kinds of elections, both candidates will start off being relatively unknown, since, as we know, most people just aren't that engaged in politics, especially at the local level. 
Let's also suppose that the only difference between the two candidates is that there's a substantial wealth gap between the respective bases of each group. What does this mean for them? Well, clearly, the candidate with wealthier supporters is able to raise more money to spend on staff, advertising, etc. They're better able to get their name out to the local public, they can organize better, and so on. In short, they'll be much more likely to win the election, and solely because their support base has more money than their opponent's base. And so here's the important point. Candidates that have worldviews and policy ideas that appeal to wealthy voters have a built-in advantage over their opponents. A thought experiment like this helps to illustrate why it is intuitive that raising more money would improve a candidate's chances of victory. And unsurprisingly, there's more than just intuition to back this up. Consider, for instance, a peaceful bump road for the Atlantic back in 2013, analyzing the relationship between spending on campaigns and chances of a candidate's victory, using the data available for 2012 races. What he found when analyzing that data fits well with the intuitions of that thought experiment. The most relevant observation he makes is that, and here I'm quoting, the more you outspent your opponents, the more you won by. In that same article, he also notes that the effects of spending were more important in closer races. In other words, in close races, those where the point spread was less than 20% of votes, to gain even a few percentage points on your opponent, you had to substantially outspend them. So if you're a would-be candidate looking to run for a seat that you know will have stiff competition, you know money is especially important for you to be able to get over the hump. Given that most candidates who win by big margins are probably unchallenged incumbents, this means that money is even more important to campaigns from new folks who want to challenge the status quo. The last key thing that Bump notes falls along those lines, and again, I'm quoting, most incumbent losses saw incumbents outraised. When you think about it, this is not surprising, but it is especially problematic. If the political system is occupied by people who tend to represent the interests of the wealthy, and we want to replace them with people with fresh ideas, we will have to raise even more money than incumbents, people who have already proven themselves capable of raising substantial amounts of money. So the financial requirements of running a campaign not only tend to favor the wealthy, but also tend to favor the status quo. It's no surprise, then, that the interests of the non-wealthy are systematically underrepresented. Think back to that Princeton study we mentioned earlier that concluded that the U.S. is actually an oligarchy. The complete explanation for why that is the case is long and complicated, but these structural facts about elections are surely part of that explanation. And notice that individual corruption did not enter into our thought experiment whatsoever. We don't need to suppose that politicians are being corrupted to show why big donations are a problem. And we don't need to posit any sort of global conspiracy. Money in politics is a problem because it skews the political landscape in favor of the wealthy. The interests of the wealthy will disproportionately dominate political discussion at the expense of everyone else just because of how the mechanics of funding campaigns work. And actually, the problem's much worse than the thought experiment suggests. The realities of running for office limit the field of who is even willing to run in the first place. Since everyone knows that you need to be able to raise lots of money to run a good campaign, it will be that much easier for those who are wealthy and have wealthy friends. For much of the rest of us, running for office represents an impossible task and a steep sacrifice given our own financial constraints. And even if less privileged people were willing to take on the additional financial risks and burdens and try to serve in a public office, the number who objectively qualify is limited by the problems of economic immobility more generally. And this is really important, because one's personal experiences with poverty shape the degree to which one can fully appreciate the realities of poverty, the ways in which socioeconomic disadvantages compound, and 
the difficulties involved in removing the barriers to equality of opportunity. It's simply more likely that those who hold a public office have less direct experience with poverty and are therefore less inclined to address it head on. Whether you are a progressive or a Democrat, this shouldn't be news. Politicians being completely oblivious and unconcerned with the needs of the poor and the non-wealthy in general is the norm, not the exception. So we've walked through one of the main overarching structural problems that arises from the role of money in politics. But we've only gestured at what exactly is so bad about the interests of the wealthy being overrepresented in our political decision processes. If we're going to get clear in the disagreements between progressives and moderates, we need to dig deeper. So, what are the main reasons for thinking it's so morally bad to have our political processes favor the wealthy? Since our observations so far have required no assumptions about individual corruption, let's focus, at least for now, on explanations that involve no attribution of individual misdeeds. Taking individual corruption off the table for a second, morally speaking, what is so problematic about the picture of the role of money in politics that we have been painting so far? Well, there are a few different sorts of answers that immediately come to mind. Some that focus on the consequences of a system that has its scales tilted in favor of the wealthy, and others that concern the fairness of our political processes. Since we've already gestured at the consequentialist reasons, let's start there. In simple terms, one reason the current structures are problematic is that they cause a lot of people's lives to be much worse than they need to be. Right. So, as we've already noted, there are a lot of ways in which the interests of the wealthy might be diametrically opposed to the interests of the rest of us. When it comes to issues like welfare, taxation, public education, and for that matter, spending on most public goods, the sorts of policies that would benefit the masses are likely to be of little direct benefit to the very wealthy. Their resources alleviate their dependence on public goods that benefit the vast majority of Americans. And thus, if the system is tilted in favor of the wealthy, less of our available resources will be used to promote the public good. Just take public education as an example. The super wealthy don't need a quality public education system for their children, since they have the resources to pay for their kids to be educated at elite private institutions. To add insult to injury, or perhaps more aptly, to add injury to injury, having a limited supply of spots for students at highly regarded educational institutions amplifies the competitive advantages of children from wealthy families. Right. And after all, it's mostly the children of the rich, or at least the highly privileged, who are able to attend our elite educational institutions. And this limits the pool of candidates that they have to compete with for high-paying jobs. Thus, there are powerful reasons for why the wealthy would be less interested in ensuring that our society has well-funded public institutions that are just as good as the private institutions that they send their children to. Right, and public education isn't an exception. It follows the rule. In virtually every example imaginable, public-funded health care, welfare, etc., where creating a public good might stand to benefit the vast majority of us, the wealthy stand to gain little if nothing, and quite possibly stand to lose a great deal. Because their resources permit them to purchase higher-quality private versions of the public goods that the rest of us depend on, they suffer no deprivation and enjoy a huge leg up in most of our competitive marketplaces, for example, our educational systems, our economy, and so on. Consequently, a society geared toward promoting the interests of the most well-off flies in the face of the basic moral sentiment that our political institutions should aim to promote the common good. There are a variety of political and moral frameworks for assessing the justness of our social institutions in terms of how well they promote human welfare, 
But pretty much any moral framework that treats human welfare as a basic component of moral evaluation will see the structural problems that we have raised as being deeply problematic. Of course, this consequentialist argument assumes that the interests of the very wealthy and the interests of average citizens are opposed to each other. But this is precisely a point on which many centrist Democrats emphasize their disagreement with progressives. For instance, the centrist Democratic think tank, The Third Way, has been arguing for years that Democrats ought to stop focusing on income inequality and wealth redistribution and instead focus on policies that promote economic mobility. They're willing to go pretty far down this road. To quote one of their recent reports, while income inequality may offend our sense of justice, its actual impact on the middle class may be small. With a singular focus on income inequality, the left's main solutions are greater redistribution and a rewriting of the rules to unrig the system, end quote. Ultimately, they blame progressives for weakening the party by focusing its attention on inequality as they consider this a red herring. In their own words, and I'm quoting here, the challenge facing the middle class is less about fundamental economic unfairness but fundamental change due to globalization and technology coupled with a country, a workforce, and a set of institutions that are simply not ready for this new economy, end quote. So, in their view, progressives are just wrong for thinking that the problems of the non-wealthy derive from income inequality, and for thinking that there is an inherent conflict between the interests of the wealthy and the rest of us. And it's important to emphasize that this isn't just the view of one centrist think tank, other thought leaders within the Democratic Party have been taking a similar line publicly, and who knows how many more silently agree. For instance, Mark Penn, chief strategist for Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign, has been very vocal in the past few months, challenging the Democratic Party to move away from quote-unquote socialist efforts to increase spending on government programs, and he's urged the party to instead shift its focus toward pro-growth policies. Right, and it can't be emphasized enough that the thought that seems to unite centrists is that they don't see an inherent conflict between the interests of the super-wealthy and the rest of us. This is obviously a crucial point of disagreement between centrists and progressives, and it's one that we plan to take up in much greater detail in an upcoming episode. But for now, we just think it's important to note that one's attitude towards money and politics is intimately related to how one thinks about income inequality. If you think massive income inequality is deeply problematic, then you probably think it's critical to get money out of politics. On the other hand, if you think income inequality is a red herring, then you might not think the role of money in politics is all that urgent. But, of course, we only say might here because we don't want to make it sound like the entire case against allowing money to play a huge role in politics rests on this one consequentialist argument. Though, let's be honest, we think the argument is correct and that it's sufficient to provide grounds to want to remove the structural factors that give the wealthy more say in our political deliberations. That's right. But again, it's not the only argument. Besides being a humanitarian disaster, we also think that there are basic tenets of democracy and civic equality that are at stake here. A crucial assumption of liberal democracies is that what confers upon the state the right to exercise its power over the citizens is that its citizens came together as political equals to collectively decide what laws to enact and what penalties would be imposed for the violations of those laws. The political equals bit here is extremely important. Just consider the extreme case where some people are denied the right to vote altogether. We know from American history that this leads to systematic oppression of people. But even if all of the paternalistic nonsense that was used to justify this political exclusion was true, namely that the old landowning white dudes really know what's best for everyone else, there would still be something fundamentally unjust about a system that locks some group of people out of the political decision-making processes. Right. In part, this just comes down to the fact that our political decisions 
cannot then be legitimately said to express the collective will of the people if some people don't have any say in our political processes or political decisions. When you deny people the right to vote, you deny them the opportunity to consent to be governed. And that in itself is morally problematic, even if it didn't lead to systematic oppression, which it of course does, and which is why we accept the consequentialist argument we considered earlier. Okay, so it's obvious that denying people the right to vote is unjustifiable and delegitimizes our political institutions. But as we've already acknowledged, people still get to vote. So what's the problem? Well, so why does the act of voting have political significance? Why is it so significant to the moral status of our political institutions? There's nothing inherent in the act itself that confers legitimacy to our political institutions. Right. What makes voting so damn important is that it's supposed to be an opportunity to decide what kinds of laws we will have and what kind of political goals our government will set for itself. And the problem with the role that money in politics plays is that it strips from ordinary citizens the opportunity to actually have any real say in our political outcomes. Sure, we get to vote, but as the empirical evidence we cited earlier shows, that act is often merely symbolic. At the end of the day, the primary influence on which laws get passed is the preferences of the super wealthy. Of course, this is not an all-or-nothing proposition. Civic equality is a normative ideal that can be satisfied to varying degrees. But it seems pretty obvious that our current institutions fall way too far short of this ideal to not call this a crisis of democracy. Again, quoting that Princeton study, average citizens and mass-based interest groups have little or no independent influence. Okay, so that all seems right, but then are centrist Democrats at least concerned about the failures of our political processes to satisfy norms of civic equality? Given how disillusioned the public is with our political institutions, it's really no surprise that you will find few Democrats outright denying that our democratic processes are flawed. But there is lots of evidence that centrist Democrats are far less concerned about civic equality than their progressive counterparts. Quite possibly the best evidence for this is the ongoing debate within the Democratic Party over the role and legitimacy of superdelegates. Superdelegates, for those who don't know, are basically Democratic Party insiders that get a special vote for the Democratic nominee in presidential primaries, and their votes do not need to reflect the results of state primaries and caucuses. In other words, they're free to vote against the wishes of ordinary citizens voting in the Democratic Party if they so choose. Now, the very idea of superdelegates stands in a deep tension with the idea that all citizens ought to have equal opportunity to influence political outcomes, as became very obvious during the first Democratic primary of 2016. Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton by 22 freaking points. But if you look at the delegate allocation after last night's New Hampshire primary, it's a tie. Bernie Sanders gets 15 delegates and Hillary Clinton gets 15 delegates. What? He won six more delegates because of the proportion of the vote he got last night, but she won six more delegates because she had the superdelegates. As Maddow's explanation of the 2016 New Hampshire primary makes clear, the result of superdelegates was to effectively override the voting power of ordinary citizens. And since superdelegates make up around 30% of total delegates, they have a tremendous veto power over the collective will of Democratic Party voters. And it isn't just that superdelegates conflict with the very idea of civic equality. It is very clear that the party uses them to prevent certain people and certain ideas from having more influence than the Democratic Party elites would like. That's right. Just listen to Debbie Wasserman Schultz explain the main reason the party keeps the superdelegate system. Unpledged delegates exist really to make sure that party leaders and elected officials don't have to be in a position where they are running against grassroots activists. Ugh. 
That's one of those clips that's kind of depressing, but also kind of cathartic. On the one hand, at least she's being honest. On the other, there you have one of the top DNC officials essentially acknowledging that they're trying to screen out certain people from having much influence over the Democratic Party. And, of course, given that grassroots activists is usually just a synonym for progressives, effectively what she's saying is that the point of superdelegates is to minimize the ability of progressives to achieve leadership roles within the party and to minimize their ability to influence the direction of the party. Right. So there seems to be two big takeaways here. The first is just that Democratic Party leaders who work for establishment candidates seem to be a lot less concerned about civic equality than most progressives. And second, we have no idea what the hell centrist Democrats are talking about when they say progressives and centrists basically agree. When they call for everyone to come together and unify, the message is really just that progressives should fall in line and accept their lot as second-class citizens within the party. Okay, so we've argued that the way our political institutions work seriously tilts the ideological playing field in favor of the interests of the wealthy. And we also argued that this is a bad thing. It leads to outcomes that are far worse for most people than they otherwise would be, and it undermines our ideals of civic equality. And we did all of this on the assumption that money does not have any corrupting influence on politicians. And this is the main point. It's not enough to just say that some or most politicians are immune from the influence of donations and then conclude that big money in politics isn't a problem. Whether or not politicians are corruptible is completely irrelevant to the larger structural problem of big money in politics. And we also argued that disagreement on the issue of money in politics actually reflects pretty deep philosophical differences between progressives and centrist Democrats concerning ideals of civic equality and to what extent our political processes realize these ideals. But let's be honest. We'd have to be pretty damn naive to just take it for granted that the influence of money in politics causes no personal corruption of politicians. That would fly in the face of what we know about human beings in general. Right, and that's the topic of next episode. We'll argue that, despite what politicians might say, there's good evidence to think that, generally, money in politics has a corrupting influence. We'll also consider the defenses of receiving big donations by centrist Democrats and consider whether it is a viable strategy for Democrats to stop taking those donations. But that's next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. This week, we'll have a couple of pieces which address an important question for us, namely, what is the role and importance of philosophy in political matters? The first piece, which I wrote, is titled, What Does Philosophy Have to Do with Politics and the Progressive Movement? And the second, which Michael wrote, is titled, Good Journalism is Not Enough. So again, if you're interested, you should check those out on our website, badlandsphilosophy.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at thebadlandspod. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.